and welcome back to the Average Joe Horror Show. I'm one of your hosts. My name is BJ, and I like pancakes. Who are you? BJ, I'm going to go ahead and say that was kind of fucking weird. Hey, everybody. My name is Brian. I'm one of the other hosts of Average Joe's Horror Show, and uh, I didn't think of a joke for this week, so my bad about that. What's going on, guys? I'm JP. Don't forget, June 13th. It's Jason Voorhees' birthday, which is in three days. Three days, man. How old is he going to be? No, eighty. He was born in uh, forty-six. Somebody do quick maths. Quick maths. Quick math, man. I have I have no ability to. Old do that. as fuck. That's the answer. <laughs> I'm I'm guessing like seventies, eighties around 70s, there. Eighties somewhere around there. Yeah. So, uh, how was everybody's uh, week? How was everybody doing? No, I was, I was surviving. Yeah, we're doing good. Doing decent. We are officially on Spotify now. Oh, Spotify. Yep, that happened earlier this week. Thanks to the guys at Heckles and Horror, uh, the man behind the screen, Andrew, he uh, definitely helped us out getting us on Anchor, and Anchor got us to Spotify and also to Google Podcasts and uh, a couple other uh, podcast platforms, if you're wondering. I did not know that we were on Google Podcasts. That's another uh, one I can send to people. Really? Yeah. Oh, we're also on Breaker and Radio Podcast. Okay, I knew about Radio Podcast. We're actually on six different podcast platforms. We're pissing somebody off. <laughs> um. Anyway, hey guys, why don't you uh, show them our new t-shirts? Oh. And don't forget the sleeves. And Got hair all over mine. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It says, uh, follow us at Average Joe Horror Show on Twitch and YouTube. Um, We'd like to give a shout out to... Uh, charming notion for making those beautiful t-shirts for us and uh we might put up on uh, some merch eventually huh i'm i'm feeling it um yeah i think we uh if 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 the joes demand it it shall be it shall be c'est la vie anyway let's go on with the show um so we decided to go with three movies this week that had to coincide with uh summer and cabins I'm covering uh, Cabin Fever this week. Uh, Brian, what are you covering? I will be working with Cabin in the Woods, and we got a little special um, special review at the end of the show. That's nothing to do with what we're doing right now, but I'll also be covering that. JP? I will be doing it on Friday the 13th. I feel like JP drew, drew the good straw this week. Man, he, uh, he's been drawing the good straw all week. <laughs> all, the past couple weeks, actually, with Bloody Bloody Bible Camp and then... Uh, Friday the 13th? Maybe my laptop won't die this time. Oh, maybe it won't. We'll see. <laughs> um, so going into Cabin Fever, it was directed by Eli Roth, and it was released on film in 2002. So I'm going to have to look at my notes for the names of the characters and the actors themselves. Um, Paul, who is a uh, writer strong from Boy Meets World, which... Uh, I mean, you can look at him and you you know he's from Boy Meets World. That's probably the biggest role he's ever had. Yeah, I mean, actually, well, it's funny that you mentioned that because Boy Meets World is a uh, Halloween special that was too dark to air for Disney. And I, I hope we get to cover that one day. It was awesome. <laughs> I mean, if you want to, I'm about it. Uh, Karen, who is uh, portrayed by Jordan Ladd, who was also in a movie that I can't recall because she's not that big of an actor. Next, uh, Bert is James DeBello. He played in Detroit Rock City, which was uh, one of my favorite movies growing up. Next is Macy, Marcy, who is played by Serena Vincent. And she also was in uh, another teen movie, or not another teen movie. She's the um, the tits girl, showing her tits all the time. Yeah, it's like, um, it's like one of those seven degrees to Kevin Bacon thing. So this time we're doing like uh, Chris any of the Chris's from the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, moving on, we got Jeff played by Joey Kern and the hiker Grimm, who was played by Eli Roth himself. You know he's got to put himself in a movie. He puts himself in all of his movies. Every movie Eli Roth's ever produced or just, yeah, produced, not even directed, he's been in. Inglorious Bastards, uh, Don't Die, and... I wish I would have prepared that statement a little bit better before jumping into it. <laughs> oh, man, it's all good. Those are just the most two recent that I've seen Eli Roth in. Hmm. So, the opening credits, 
Um, they kind of look like bed sheets at first, and then they kind of go to a lot more fleshy tone, and then they get bloody. Um, I was hoping for a title card. Uh, watching it now, I was hoping for a title card, but back in the day, you know, younger, you're not really paying attention to that kind of stuff. We haven't learned the lingo yet. But it has a nice, slow, creepy uh, score going to it, and then it uh, moves on to shots of nature and slowly moving through the woods and we come across a guy uh he's i can't really remember his name but they keep calling him the hermit he doesn't really live anywhere he lives in the woods with his dog and he's approaching a dog that's kind of laying on its side can't really tell what's going on he's approaching the dog and i don't think the dog actually had a name i think he just called him puppy or dog so he goes up to the dog you know, what the hell's wrong with you? Uh, why aren't you acting like a normal dog? He goes to pet the dog, nothing. He lifts the dog's leg up, and boy, money shot. <laughs> looked like a ketchup bottle full of blood squirted him in the face. Like, uh, you know, just picture your... Oh, yeah, I, I get where you're going. Money shot. It, <laughs> yes. Uh, so, after that, it then introduces us to our five college students. You have... Uh, Paul, Bert, Marcy, the Cole gang, uh, they're leaving to, they're leaving college and they're going to the cabin for the weekend or the summer. They don't really specify what's going on, but leading up to that, one of the females leans out of the car and looks at this kid and says, you know, never go to college. College is a waste of time. So they leave and there wasn't really any buildup after that. They kind of just appeared at the cabin. Well, they Pulled up to a general store. And when they pulled up to a general store, they met the, I guess we would call him crazy old man who runs the general store. The gatekeeper. gatekeeper. That's, a, that's a pretty standard horror term. Um, and it, it's always the guy that warns the kids, don't go up to that cabin. And he's that, that figure has generally been just kind of turned into the gatekeeper. A lot of horror movies use that. You know, like uh, last week with Bloody Bloody Valentine. Bloody, bloody Valentine. Bloody, bloody Bible camp. <laughs> uh, we had the gatekeeper at that shop. Uh, in Tucker and Dale, we have a gatekeeper scenario, um, which we haven't got to review yet, yet, but we're working on it. I'm sorry I keep interjecting, man. <laughs> no, no, you're good. Hey, it's, it's all good. So they meet the storekeeper or the gatekeeper of sorts, and, you know, he doesn't really warn them not to go anywhere, but they go and buy some booze, and uh, Brett, Bert, he steals a candy bar, Snickers, and he gets caught by a gentleman outside, and I don't know what it is, but Bert, he kind of has a, a feeling of, you know, liking that soft, warm, creamy nougat in the middle of the Snickers bar he just stole. That ends that scene. Now, there's some stuff about some fox piss, and they're, they throw the N-word in there a couple times, talking about a rifle. So they get to the cabin. And immediately off the bat, sex scene. Boom. We got Joey and Marcy just going at it. Not even five minutes at the cabin yet. We're going to roll it back a little bit, actually. I forgot to mention uh, the kid, Dennis. He's got that awesome blonde mullet oh, yeah. type deal. You know what I'm talking about? Dennis. And he bites Paul on the hand, and the dad actually gets mad at him about it. He's like, why don't you just put a damn sign on the kid? Why do we got to deal with it? <laughs> and then we, you know, going back, he stole the Snickers bar. Uh, the kids get to the cabin, not even five minutes, they start fucking. Um, after they get done fucking, they go swimming. Whatever teenagers do when they're at a cabin, not being supervised. I mean, they're they're basically adults, they're in college, but... There's no guidance while they're there. Yeah. And they have a campfire, and then we have the Grim. The kid calls himself Grim, but he's uh, just a hiker, just like them. He walks up and introduces himself. He's like, hey, can I come hang out with y'all? They're like, uh, I think we're good, actually. Like, well, I guess I'm going to have to smoke all this weed by myself. And they're like, oh, you know, come on back. So they get to hanging out, smoking weed, having a good time. And Grim has to leave because uh, his shit's getting rained on at this point. So uh, we're going to fast forward to the next day. 
uh, Bert grabs his rifle and he's going to go shoot some squirrels. Why is he going to shoot squirrels? Well, to him, they're gay. So uh, we're going to leave it. Is at that, that an actual quote? That's a quote. They okay. said, uh, where are you going? Where are you going with that rifle? He said, I'm going to go and shoot some squirrels or something. Why are you going to shoot squirrels for? What'd they do to you? They're gay. Ah, uh, just squirrels are gay. That's it. That's that's what came out of his mouth. There's a lot of things going wrong with that guy in his head. Then I'm guessing. Well, he's kind of the stoner pothead guy of the group. Okay. Oh. So he goes and hunts down squirrels, and he's as any I guess teenager, I'm guessing close to twenties would do, dicking off with a a weapon, and. He gets startled by something behind him and he shoots a hermit in the leg, I believe it was. <laughs> shoots him in the leg. And Bert does what any normal person would do. He runs off. Yeah. Has nothing else for the guy. Thinks that's the last time he's going to see him. But they get back to the cabin, having a good time. And they hear a knocking at the door and somebody yelling for help. They open the door and it's the hermit. And uh, while they're trying to help him, Bert realizes who it is. And at this point, when he's trying to close the door, the hermit realizes that that's the guy who shot him. So they start having a, you know, screaming match. They slam the door in his face. And I didn't think it was actually, well, I wouldn't say possible. But the hermit goes to their vehicle. I mean, what else is he going to do? He's just bloodied up. You don't really know what's going on at this point in the movie. And he gets in their car. You know, I know you're in the cabin somewhere deep off in bumfucked Egypt, but, you know, I feel like you should probably lock your door behind you, your vehicle. Yeah. No matter the circumstance, I guess that's just the way I was raised growing up. What about y'all? Would you, uh, do, were y'all raised to lock your doors? Oh, uh, no, nah, not really. I'm going to be honest with you. I barely lock mine. I was raised with don't keep anything of importance in your car. <laughs> well... <laughs> I guess I'm the weird one. Then. I don't think you're the weird one. I mean, yeah, it's pretty common practice. Lock your door no matter where you're at. But for me, I only really lock my door when I'm in a place that like, I know it's just uh, an epicenter of bad things could possibly happen. So <clears throat> the hermit gets in their car. They quickly realize that he gets in their car and they're going to do something about it. So Paul grabs a baseball bat. And Bert grabs the rifle and he proceeds to beating the shit out of the hood of the car with a baseball bat. Like that's going to stop the hermit from like, that's going to get it, get him to leave. Yeah. And Bert shoots the tire. I guess he might've thought he was going to drive off, but you just like stranded yourself at this point. I mean, yeah, this is their car. They're beating the shit out. Well, of. no, it's Joey's car. Okay. <laughs> Which if I was Joey, I would be a little bit pissed off. I mean, you've seen how much I love my car. Oh, without if, a doubt. If somebody decides to start hitting, I don't care if there's a homeless person sitting in my car. If somebody decides to beat the shit out of it with a baseball bat and then shoot it, I'm a little upset. Oh, well, yeah. You'll be a little more than upset. I mean, the vehicle yeah. they had wasn't like something outstanding. I mean, nothing compares to the Miata. Miata? Am I saying that right? <laughs> I'm like three seconds from kicking your ass. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong, buddy? <laughs> Nothing, man. All right, anyway. I'll talk shit about my car. <laughs> <laughs> so, leading off from that, so the hermit decides finally to get out the car, and he's going after the girls because they're the weakest link. And he's approaching them, approaching them, and they spray him with, I guess, a bug spray or hairspray or something of the sorts. It's aerosol can. Yeah. And Paul had the bright idea of getting a torch or a log that was in the fireplace. Approaches him with it and lights this poor, sad fucker on fire. Just a blaze. So that's going to be our first kill of the movie. Yeah. All we see is the he's on fire, he's running away, and that's the last time we ever really see the hermit. And uh, we're going to skip past uh, the rest of the plot summary. You know, they realize that there's a disease going on, and I'm going to go with just finish up with the kills. Yeah. Uh, so going on, we now have... Uh, it's apparent that something's wrong with these people. And Karen is the first one that catches the disease and they lock her in a cabin outside of the cabin. 
uh, shed of sorts. So they lock her in the shed, and she's not doing too hot. Later on, uh, Marcy is just got done having sex with Paul. She's about to take a shower, so she takes a bath. It's real apparent she has the disease too, but she just doesn't want to come to that level and admit it. She has like scratch marks down her back and they're really red and she's shaving her legs. And this is the most iconic scene in this movie, period. So she's shaving her legs and the part of the leg that she's shaving is just one stroke goes by, normal color leg. Next stroke goes by, a little bit of red. Next stroke goes by and she's peeling skin off of her. Oof. Just peeling it. And at this point, when I, I remember watching it when I was younger. I was like, why the fuck would you keep going? And I kind of cringed a little bit. Yeah. Because I had to I had to look away when I was younger. But she just kept going. And it was just, I don't know, at a young age, but I don't know when I watched it the first time. It was nine, ten years old. So she keeps going. And she rips a large amount of skin off of her leg, shaving. And she stands up. There's blood just pouring all over her body. She gets a, a robe. And she proceeds to leave the house. And this is where Grim, the hitchhiker, he had a dog. His name was Dr. Mundo. Was the dog's name? Yeah. Was he a doctor? Was he a professor? You know? Um, I'm not going to verify where this canine got his uh, MD. So, no, I don't. Well, he's a professor of being a dog. Okay. That's a quote from the movie. Oh. Okay. Just letting you know. I, <laughs> I didn't know if you were catching on at all. No, I didn't. <laughs> I know I saw an opportunity to, to to comment on a dog's you know ability to go to school when I took it. So she leaves the yeah cabin and heads to the shed to go check on uh, Karen. As she's going to check on Karen, Doctor Mundo. Not sure if he has rabies or anything like that, but he goes and he attacks Marcy for no apparent reason, and so it cuts from there, and. Now Paul's back. Paul comes back. He goes into the cabin, comes back outside the cabin, and he sees just this bloody mess. Like there was something afoot because all they found of Marcy was her foot. Yeah. So he's approaching the shed, and as he's approaching the shed, uh, it's wide open. He hears noise coming from the inside of it. And we can go ahead and assume Marcy was our second kill of the movie. Yeah. So he's approaching the shed. And there's some chewing noises coming in and he, he looks in and he sees this dog just gnarling away at this chick's like rib cage, like going to town. Like she's a chew toy. He looks up, there's blood all over his face. Uh, Marcy, not Marcy, Karen looks up and is like, fuck, help me, help me. <laughs> so Paul takes off running, doesn't help her at all. Takes across the yard for some reason. Magically, there was a rifle laying on the ground just out of nowhere. Yeah. Lands on the rifle, turns around, and that's where we get the third kill of the movie. Poor Dr. Mundo. Always count the kill of the dog. I count all animals, man. Hey, man. All animals are precious. <laughs> you know who didn't think that? The director of Cannibal Holocaust. Ouch. I don't think I was ready for that one. I don't know. Still, it doesn't matter. <laughs> that's still pretty deep right there. So, Paul kills Dr. Mundo, the dog. He goes back to check on Karen. Karen is not doing so hot. All of her face off her skin, the skin off her face was removed. Like, you see teeth from the skull, cheekbones. Looking real apparent, she ain't gonna make it. Yeah. And I think Paul's picking up on that, too. Because my man looks to his right, picks up a shovel, and proceeds to start beating Karen's face in. I mean... Because I guess it's a mercy kill. He had a rifle. He did. But my man oh. shoveled her in the face to death. <laughs> I mean, mercy kill could have been the term if he used the rifle. JP, what do you think? Would you use the rifle or the shovel? I'm going shovel on this one. I mean, it just depends on how much you like the girl to me. My I mean, thing is, is like it, it's said, it's assumed that it's a mercy killing, but I feel like some of the attentions behind it, you know, they're a little more, they're a little more sinister. I mean, sinister. technically. I mean, he... he Slept with her, so I mean, I mean, she probably wasn't that good. You think it was emotions? Uh, 
Didn't want like seeing her like that. I think it was poor writing. <laughs> hey, you lay off my man. Right? <laughs> okay, okay, I'm sorry. We'll we'll discuss that later, sir. I got you. All right. So he proceeds to beating her face in. So she's gotten taken out by the disease, the dog, and a shovel to the face, which was a mercy killing. So our man Bert decides he's going to leave. He takes their jeep or another jeep that was nearby, runs off to the town, goes to the local uh, store again, and guess who is waiting for him at the store? Tommy. The father of Dennis and Dennis himself. And Tommy said, you know, hell, I see, you know, you're in trouble. Give me a second. I'll go inside and we'll take you to the hospital. So at this point, I'm feeling, you know, Bert's going to make it. He's going to be all right. Yeah. I mean, he's a little stupid, but he's going to be okay. I don't know what came over Dennis, but he decided to go all uh, Jackie Chan on Bert. And fun yeah. fact, I'll tell you later about it, why they int- they added that part to it. So he starts flipping through the air. He goes to Bert. He bites him on the hand. And as soon as he bites Bert on the hand, you can tell that he fucked up. Yeah. I don't know how he could tell. Like, I don't know if it was the taste of his blood or why the kid knows what blood tastes like. But. I mean, he bit somebody early on in the movie. Oh, that is true. I forgot about that. You're right. I mean, if it tasted off the second time. Yeah. It is what it is. I think my boy Dennis is a cannibal. I'm calling it. Continuing on. So Tommy, the father, comes back out. He says, you done fucked up now. He said, my son biting you and catching that disease, you just killed my son. We have a problem. So Bert hops back in the Jeep, takes off. The rednecks, him and his merry band of rednecks, there's three of them. You have Andy, Tommy, and Fenster. Classy name right there, Finster. That's a, that's a pretty solid name. So they hop in there. What, what year was it? You said it was a 79 Ford? It was an earlier model than a 79. So they hop into the truck. They take off after him. They make it back to the cabin. Paul helps Bert back into the cabin into a rocking chair and hands him the shotgun because he, he knows they're coming. They know where they're at. They know what cabin they're at. So the rednecks come up to the house. Um, one has a box, which I've always been curious on what was in the box. They never really went into detail. It's just a kit. That's all they call it. Well, I'll get the kit. So you have Finster on the left. You have Andy on the right. And you have, no, you have Tommy on the right and Andy in the middle. And they're like hand signals, like, what are we doing? So they kick the door in. And Bert, classic line was, good night, fuckers, I believe it was. And then Bert gets blown away with a shotgun. Didn't even get a, didn't get a shot off. Sad way to see him go. I mean, he was probably one of my more favorite characters in the movie, just because I have a fond memory of him in Detroit Rock City, and I'm a little dumb too. But he gets killed, and Paul takes it looks like a canteen, and he hits Andy, one of the rednecks in the face, and that's another kill. That we just came across. Uh, kill number six. He's smashed his face in with a canteen with one hit. So Paul pretty strong. And as the Andy's falling back, he has a shotgun and he shoots Tommy in the ribs. So Tommy's down. He's crawling away. And Paul comes out of the house and sees Fenster. Fenster starts fumbling with the kit. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know if he's trying to get an antidote, you know, trying to show him, you know, it's okay. Or if there was something more sinister in the box, I really want to know what's in the box. So my man, Paul grabs a screwdriver and shoves it through this dude's ear. That cannot be a good feeling, it. man. I just thought about it. That's why I shook. Um, just, I want you to just think right in here. That's, it's not a good feeling. I also think how much force it takes. How, how much force do you think it takes? I mean, it takes something in the size of a pea traveling five miles an hour and knock your eye completely dead. So probably takes a pretty good bit of force because it's got bone. Well, he shoves this screwdriver up to the handle into this man's ear. And it kind of made me cringe a little bit, even now. <laughs> Gave him the full six inches. I like the way you think. Because I think it was a six-inch screwdriver. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. It was a pretty quick movement, so I couldn't actually tell. All right, so now we have um, Finster's dead. Screwdriver through the ear. 
Andy's dead, smashed in the face with a canteen, would look like. And so Tommy got shot in the ribs. He's crawling away. My man Paul is sick and tired of the bullshit. He goes and grabs just a branch. Doesn't know, don't know if it's sharp at the end, but he hawks Tommy down. Tommy's crawling away for his dear life. Paul comes up behind him, impales him through the back of the neck. They don't actually show it, but he had enough force. Paul stuck the branch into the ground and was sticking straight up. Paul dips out. Then uh, Paul's looking for Joey, one of the last survivors. He ran off earlier in the movie because everybody was getting sick with the disease. And he wanted to you know, let him know not to drink from the water because at this point, Paul realized that the disease is in the water. Yeah. Can't find him, but he stumbles across a cave and there's a flashlight in the cave. He thinks it might be Joey. He goes in there, realizes it's grim. That's another off screen kill. Number eight. Uh, we can just go ahead and assume he died from the disease. Yeah. Um, they had a close up maggots coming out of his face. He looked pretty decayed at this point. So Paul's trying to get out of there. He takes the rednecks truck that he just killed. He goes driving down the road. Uh, at this point it's nighttime. And I don't know what Paul was doing. He didn't have a cell phone, so he wasn't texting or driving, but some deer goes face first into this damn truck and basically boxing with him inside the truck cab. Uh, he grabs a shotgun, shoots deer in the face. Deer, this is probably one of the worst special effects in the movie. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I know we don't have, you know, when we ask, you know, what was the best, what was the worst. But this was probably the worst because you would think a shotgun blast from that close, windshield, driver's seat, 79, old school truck. Yeah. It's pretty close. This deer just kind of falls over, just onto the ground. I thought there would know, have been a little more force since it was a double barrel shotgun. Oh, yeah. So that would be our ninth kill. Paul eventually makes it to... Uh, a fire like a campfire and one of the police officers there and earlier in the movie he was telling him you know if you want the best parties you'll come find me and there's a group of kids playing uh, guitar the harmonica all that good stuff just having a good time all walks up bloody in the face looks at uh winston that's the police officer's name who fun fact winston played in detroit rock city as well he was the bassist He's like, you know, what's up? Well, you all right? You're covered in blood. He said, uh, you said you were going to send the tow truck up there, asshole. What happened to the tow truck? He said, well, the tow truck got stuck, so I had to call another tow truck. My bad. Paul goes ballistic, starts beating the crap out of this dude with his own guitar. And while he's beating the crap out of him, he somehow hits the guy with the harmonica. And this is where I was telling you earlier today. It's not a kill, but I feel like it would have killed him. Because he hits him with so much force with the guitar that it knocks the harmonica down his throat. Right? So, so like, if the guy tried to talk, was it knocked down his throat in a way to where air could make harmonica sounds? Or just, like, directly down his throat? There was harmonica sounds. Okay. Guy's dead. Guy's gotta be dead. Well, here's the thing. So... Paul finishes beating the crap out of Winston. Winston hits the ground. Guy with the harmonica down his throat also hits the ground. And as Winston's laying there, he, you know, he hears him hit the ground behind him, the harmonica guy. We don't actually get a name for the guy, so that's what I'm calling a harmonica guy. Oh, uh, no, but harmonica guy sounds like my hero. Well, he hits the ground, and he's wheezing, and it's like... <laughs> harmonica sounds intensifies. <laughs> yeah, no, if it was a Netflix like movie and you had the captions on it, yeah, that's exactly it. harmonica sounds intensifies. So I'm gonna call that the tenth but not tenth kill. Yeah. Our actual tenth kill. Because at this point, uh Paul gets sent to the hospital. Paul is being pushed down this hospital like hallway. And as he passes by, he looks through a doorway and he sees this like dude in a, a bunny suit. So apparently, does disease also like you see hallucinations and stuff? Yeah, I'm guessing that would be my thing. 
So he's laying in the hospital bed. He's getting questioned by the uh, sheriff, all that good stuff. And so now Jeff, I think I've been calling him Joey. He's not that, that big of an are, actor. He was been gone for most of it. Yeah. Which there was a reason he wasn't in most, most of the movie, and I'll touch on that later. So he comes back out of his hiding hole, and for the last 24 hours, the only thing he's had to drink was two cases of arrogant bastard ale. So he's pretty blitzed. Yeah. So he gets back to the cabin, realizes everybody's dead, but he doesn't have the disease. So he leaves the cabin. And as he's leaving the cabin, he's like, I made it. I made it. I'm not infected. And he's kind of crying, but kind of rejoicing at the same time, which come to realize he doesn't really care about his friends. He's just glad he doesn't have the disease. Yeah. So he's happy. He's about to leave. He's walking out the door. And then just out of nowhere, he gets obliterated. I'm talking about five guys with pistols. It looked like a scene from Platoon. <laughs> like, dun, 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 dun. Um, Eli Roth compared it to the Night of the Living Dead at the end, uh, the black and white one, where the black guy walks out and he gets obliterated with a bunch of white dudes with pistols. Yeah. It's kind of like the same kind of a scene. That same feel. Okay. Kind of rejoice and then... Immediate disappointment. Like mm-hmm. Just immediate disappointment. I don't think the emotional impact was there, uh, was there as much as it was from uh, Not a Living Dead. See, Not a Living Dead, we have a character that we've had the entire movie, and he's been rocking hard. But oh, this man. one, it's just like the guy got drunk off in a shed somewhere, and now we have rejoicing? Come on. Well, like, see, here's the thing. is This was a, a millennial like white kid with privilege, so that's why he got drunk in a shed all night. I mean, I see where you're coming from. I'm not trying to bring the whole racial debate into it. Oh, I wasn't bringing the racial debate. I'm, I'm, I'm more <sighs> generation-wise. Okay. Back in the day, they were more hardworking and more willing to survive. This guy ran away from his problems. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at. I wasn't... Well, uh, all I'm saying is I, I feel the the, uh, the emotional structure wasn't there that Eli Roth was eluding at. Hmm. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So back to the hospital. The doctor says, you know, the only way he's going to survive if he goes... So many miles, he's not going to make it, essentially, is what's going to happen. And the sheriff's like, well, you know, if you want to touch him, you can load him up into the truck and you can take him. The doctors kind of looked at each other and like, he's an outsider. We don't really care. So, this is where we bring back Winston, the police officer. Yeah. Bandage across his head. All we see is him driving. And you hear Paul moaning. You don't see him in the back seat. You don't see him in the front seat. I kind of got the vibe that he was uh, tied to the top of the truck or car, whatever they were in, like a deer. Yeah. Like that. And I wouldn't call it an off-screen kill, but this is going to be the last kill of the movie. And it's Paul. The disease got him. They didn't actually kill him. They dumped him in the river. Yeah. uh, Face first into it. And that's towards the end of the movie. And the very end of it is some kids get some water from a, into their, what is it? Uh, into their wa- just a water bucket. Essentially, they're gonna make lemonade, and this is the same water that uh, Paul has been festering yeah. in for God knows I don't know four, five, six hours because it was nighttime still. And now it's day, so they mix lemonade into the water, and now they're selling it to the townspeople, and that's where you know it kind of alludes that now they're fucked. Yeah, and so that's the end of the movie. Um. If I'm going to do a dead meat style, I'm going to say there was a kill every uh, eight minutes and 45 seconds to the movie. All right. So going on to more facts of the movie, they only filmed for 24 days. Their budget was a $1.5 million for this movie, which for 2002, I mean, special effects wise, makeup wise, it wasn't that bad. You can't take that away from Eli Roth. Yeah, I mean, like the, uh, but even with like that's still a massive budget for two thousand and two. Mm-hmm. I agree that the effects were nice. I'm, I'm not saying anything actually wrong with that. for the year of two thousand and two to two thousand and three. That was the lowest budgeted movie for Lionsgate Productions. I mean, that's kind of crazy, though. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. And uh, opening weekend, they generated eight point six million dollars. Uh, gross in the USA, they uh, 
they generated $21 million. Worldwide, they generated $30.5 million. They held the record for Lionsgate of the highest grossing movie in 2003 until Saw came out. And Saw was what beat them. Uh, like going to more to, I guess, fun fact area was stuff, stuff you might not have known is that uh, director Eli Roth got the idea for the movie while he was in Iceland at a horse ranch. And he developed some kind of bacterial infection on his face. And while he was shaving, uh, it was starting to get irritated. And he kept going because it was real itchy. And at one point, he started like peeling off layers of his skin. Mm-hmm. So he had a giant chunk of skin missing from his face. And that's where he got inspiration for this movie. Which leads into the sound mixer, uh, John Neff who actually got diagnosed with the same disease that they have in the movie. And he actually survived it. Uh, He was under 13 straight days of uh, immediate care. And that's the only way he overcame the, I think it's necrofasciitis. Yeah. Uh, They filmed for 24 days and uh, they got stopped halfway through the filming because the union caught wind of what they were doing making a movie. And I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing everybody at the, in this table knows what the union is. Yeah. So they went around the whole production studio and convinced 51% of cast and crew that they should join the union, whether it was be by force or by, you know, bribes, I guess. Yeah. What can the union do for you? Mm-hmm. So they took money away from Eli Roth's uh, budget. So, which forced him to go to dentists, doctors, his credit cards, his personal credit cards, to finish making the movie. At the end of the movie, after it was uh, produced, Peter Jackson loved the movie so much during his production of uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, what is it, the Return of the King in 2003, he halted his own production to give a live screening to his entire crew of the movie three times. And he gave uh, Eli Roth uh, publicity on it about how much he loved the movie. And you know Peter Jackson, the big name in movies. Oh, man, Peter Jackson's a big name in horror in general. He got his start there before he even touched Lord of the Rings or any of those properties. He was strictly a horror director. What, Peter Jackson was a... He directed a horror movie? He directed a few horror movies. Which ones? First one that comes to mind is Bad Taste. Uh, There's another one that he did with puppets that I don't remember the name of. Uh, And the third one is... It's uh, called Dead by Daylight here in America, or Dead Before Dawn here in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, in New Zealand, it's called like Dead Fred or like uh, uh, Head Cheese or something like that. And I don't remember. I wish I would have looked it up a little earlier, a little earlier today. But you can look it up. That was Eli, uh, not Eli Roth, but uh, Peter Jackson's first steps before moving that way. Hmm. That's awesome. Cause all I really know of Peter Jackson from is Lord of the Rings, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have never guessed he was a horror director. I mean, you know, liking horror and being a nerd go kind of hand in hand, if you haven't seen everybody at this table. <laughs> well, I mean, in more of the horror genre, I'm more into the movies and the plot and the kills and all that stuff. Um, directors really never played a factor unless you were Wes Craven or John Carpenter or maybe George A. Romero. Yeah. Those are my top, like, those are my dudes. So going on with the behind the scenes deal, uh, it was quoted that Winston, the guy who played in Detroit Rock City, yeah. I can't remember his name. It's a really weird Italian name. <laughs> I'm sorry if somehow you watch this podcast eventually. Sorry, I just can't pronounce your name. I'm gonna <laughs> call you Winston. He says the word party a total of 15 times in the movie. 15 times. You know how long he was actually in the movie? How much? Less than five minutes. He said party 15 times in any form of faction of party. Like, hey, guy, I got a party tonight. Hey, let's party. I'm ready to party. You guys want to party? Party, party, party. Yeah. 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 So going on in the credits, I don't know if you pay attention to the credits, but uh, the guy who was in the bunny suit, when they got to his name, 
uh, they specifically put in the credits that we, his name was Will Never Tell who it actually was. So huh. it's kind of a mystery. You never know. Uh, original release uh, at the end of the movie was a mention of one more dead person in the in the cellar basement area. Yeah, uh, Winston told the sheriff that. So the sheriff said, "All right, we'll send guys down there." But we never actually saw anybody die in the basement, right? No, it was actually a goof on production's part because that was a part of deleted scenes. Huh. One of the rednecks, actually, uh, he, he wasn't killed. I think it was Andy, the one who got hit in the face, smashed in the face. Yeah. He crawled down in the basement, and he died of the disease there. So that was kind of a goof on production. So now we're going to talk about the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, Cabin Fever's remake in 2016. Um, I've watched it once. It wasn't directed by Eli Roth. So I already had a bad taste in my mouth going into it. If you're going to make a remake, at least have the same director so it has the same feel. Yeah. It kind of felt more of like a Skinamax feel to it. Like it was sort of low budget kind of feel, but not enough that you can well, really tell. It had a higher, I think it had more of a budget than the original movie. But, you know, that was 2016 compared to 2002. Yeah. So that's like night and day. That's over a decade. Well, I mean, like the one, uh, the the remake, I've, I've, I was reading a few articles today, and a lot of people agree that it just felt kind of like a television television special. It didn't feel like a movie, like a movie that should be out. It feel it felt like something that it should have just came out on like sci fi and been done. No, you're absolutely. It shouldn't have gone to the movie theaters or anything. So I I didn't take any time to memorize any of these facts. I'm about to tell you of Cabin Fever 2016. It just For what you were telling me earlier today. It's just. You guys don't have to watch that one. <laughs> no, I'm not even. There's not going to be a Joe recommended on it at the end of the episode. Like it's not even getting that kind of treatment. Like this, the treatment I'm about to give it, honestly, <laughs> it's just not good. So my number one con or con, no fact, it was not directed by Eli Roth. Um, it got a zero percent approval rating from Rotten Tomatoes. That's, Zero. That's rare. Mm-hmm. Like Usually a list crappy of, movies yeah. do better, right? There's like a list of uh, of, of 0% that Rotten Tomato has done. And Cabin Fever 2016 is one of them. Um, box office, what they made in the first weekend was $39,000. That's not that impressive comparably. Especially mm-hmm. if it had a lot more of a budget than the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, overall thoughts? zero out of 10. Like never going to watch it again. I'm glad I didn't buy it. I'm glad I didn't rent it. If you want to watch it, it's on Netflix. I highly recommend you don't. So back to the good one, overall thoughts of uh, cabin fever, 2002. Uh, I think inspiration wise, it gave more inspiration to movies that came out later, like in 2008 and 2006 quarantine. And the other one is, what was it? Uh, carriers. Yeah. Carriers, you know, more disease type movies. Cause uh, you can argue me up and down. Quarantine's not a zombie movie. There's no, about rabies. A, so it's, it's, a, it's disease. a disease movie. So it gave inspiration to that. And Eli Roth shows. And uh, I watched, you know, interviews with him earlier today and the interviews with him. He was talking about how, you know, he borrowed all this money and got a $1.5 million budget. So all the money he made back, he barely got paid any of it. Yeah. Any of the money he made went all to all the investors. So it goes to prove he should be inspiration to younger directors. Yeah. That if you work hard, you can get your name out there. And it's not always about the money. He even said it's not always about the money. And Say what you will, but I think Cabin Fever in 2002 it was a good movie. I'm not going to say it wasn't a good movie, and it, I understand where you're going, uh, coming from with that. Um, no, he definitely used that movie as a stepping stone to show that he was still a, he was a good director. And uh, I actually think the uh, he went on to make a movie after that, which uh, Sean actually made us watch recently, the uh, Stay Alive. Shout out to Sean. Shout out to Sean. Uh, Orthodox Panda on Twitch for all those of you that aren't following. 
Um, but uh, he went on to direct Stay Alive, and that movie actually did very successfully when it came out. And it came out, I think, 2003 or 2004. So, I'm going to wrap it up. All right. With, for a movie that your first kill doesn't happen until towards the end of the movie. Realistically, right? Yeah. It still managed to grab your attention the whole time. <coughs> no, it stayed interesting. That's something that I enjoyed about it. It definitely grabbed your attention. It kept you interested the whole time. I wouldn't call it a slow burner. Slow burners are more like a... Extreme slow burners like the birds from Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. But this one stayed creepy. It gave you the vibe of, you know, something's going to happen and it just kind of builds up suspense. And the last 20 to 30 minutes of the movie is just nonstop kills the entire time. Every, any which way you turn around, something's dying. And it's not just dying, it's dying in a tremendous fashion. And to wrap it all up, in an interview with uh, Eli Roth, he said, if you can't get laid after watching Cabin Fever, something's wrong with you. Because he said, and quote, he made this movie to help guys get laid. Do you know why? Why? Because <laughs> the perfect balance of horror and comedy. He said the building of suspense and the relieving of the comedy. So horror suspense, like if you went to the movie theaters and watched this in the theaters, and you went with... Uh, girlfriend at the time so i really think it's funny that you mentioned that because earlier today while speaking about this movie our very good friend thundercles and i'm not gonna tell you his real name and if you know him by thundercles uh i'm not sure if i have approval to tell this story but i'm doing it anyway you know hold on hold on okay so we're just gonna you know make it a short long long story short yeah long story so what short. happened is our buddy during the watching cabin fever he also had extracurricular extra activities in the watching of the movie. That's yeah. where we're going to leave it. We're just going to leave we're it. We're just going to leave it there. So Eli Roth's theory is correct. Yeah. He helps you get laid during the movie. Okay. Because when it's scary, the girl's holding on to you. He adds comedy to give you that breath of relief. And at the end of the movie, she's scared because, you know, you can't help but disease the disease. Yeah. Even how, how rare it is, you could still get it. It's still a possibility. She doesn't want to sleep alone. So she comes over to your place. And that's where I end my discussion on Cabin Fever. What did you think of the movie when you watched it? JP. <laughs> I mean, it was a good movie. I liked it. It's um, it's like more what last week was. Something that could actually kill you. Like actually get in your immune system and kill you. Um, but definitely one of those kind of real life things that could happen to you. Um, I thought it was a great movie. To be honest with you. Thought it was great. Appreciate that. Ryan. I enjoy the movie for what it is. It is a horror movie. It, it's, it is kind of Eli Roth love letter to horror. Um, he really, really, really pushed to have some just creativity inside of this movie. And I appreciated that. And I really enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, that's it. just because I enjoy it doesn't mean somebody else is going to enjoy it. Um, it's not my favorite movie. There are a few other. I think there are areas in this movie where it could have done better, and they attempted to do that with the remake, and then it just absolutely fell flat. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So let's uh, let's wrap it up with the Joe recommended. So we're gonna go ahead and start with Cabin Fever. It should be on the screen. Um. Cabin Fever, you heard my thoughts on it. Uh, Brian, what's your thoughts on it? So, it's a solid movie. I wish the writing would have been a little stronger. It is Eli Roth's love letter to horror. I'm going to say a solid three and a half Joes for Cabin Fever. I like it. I think anybody that's going to watch it is going to enjoy it as a horror fan. But outside of the realm of being a horror fan, you're probably not going to get it. It might blow over your head. That's why I'm giving it a three and a half. Three and a half. And I'd like to go ahead and thank Genocide. If he's still in the chat, thank you for the beautiful graphics that are now on the screen uh, for the three and a half Joes out there. of five. Look at that. Yeah, that's pretty. And we're going to go ahead and get rid of that for uh, JP. JP, uh, what do you uh, recommend this movie? 
See, this is and 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 this week, this is this is my second favorite movie. I mean, Kevin in the Woods is gonna be my third favorite. Um, it's gonna be my least favorite. I mean, because it's just I don't like the whole sci-fi aspect to Kevin in the Woods, but I do like Cabin Fever because it's actually something that could happen to you in real life. Like you, you this you could actually get this in real life. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna give this a, a three out of five Joes. Um. Because it's 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 a solid movie. I mean, like Ryan said, it, it's got some some holes in the story, yeah. and, and it needs to be written better. But I think if they remade it, it'd be a really <laughs> a reboot good of movie. the reboot. Yeah, yeah, a reboot of the reboot with an actual good director, um, like the first one. It would actually be a great movie. I feel like Eli Roth would be a lot stronger in directing if he was to be directing it now. Yeah, so I, like I you know, like if Eli, if somehow magically this ends up in the hands of Eli Roth, dude, if you want to remake that movie with, with your chops now, go for it. Oh, yeah. like, it'd be a solid movie, solid without a doubt. Um, All right, BJ, what's yours? So, Cabin Fever. You've heard my spill on it. I'm not going to go any further into it. Um, I think it's an outstanding movie. I have um, a little bit of bias growing up. You know, I've, I've watched Cabin Fever multiple times. It's not on the same level as Michael Myers, but I still think it's really good for what it was back in 2002 and the limited amount of budget and the the halts they had going through it and what Eli Roth pulled off was fantastic. And for that, I'm going to give it a solid four and a half Joes out of five. Fight me on it. I'm gonna fight you. There's no reason to fight you. I'll fight okay. you. You're beautiful, baby. Okay, cool. I'll right. tongue punch your rusty starfish, bro. Rusty starfish. I'll do that. No, and uh, if you ever have a moment, um, go to YouTube and uh, look up Eli Roth on Cabin Fever Part One. I think that's the whole name of the title. And he has uh, the first beginning part of that video his solid outlook on the past horror films and to the present horror films. And I've never agreed so much. And it's like, he said something that was deep down inside of me that I just couldn't form into words. And that's, where we're going to stop with uh cabin fever.